You're listening to Talking Liberties with the ACLU of Illinois. Here's your host, Ed Yonka, Director of Communications and Public Policy. The recent murder of Black people by police has laid bare the systemic racism that permeates every part of our criminal legal system and indeed our entire society. And it has reignited the conversation of how we organize policing in the United States. The evidence of this racism is present throughout the system right here in Illinois. If you are a Black person in Illinois, you are 2.73 times more likely to be stopped for a traffic violation. You're one time more likely to be asked for permission to have your car searched once you're stopped. You're seven and a half times more likely to be arrested under Illinois' old cannabis law when it was in effect. And you're two and a half times more likely to be shot by police. This episode, we're going to talk about policing in the United States and the racism that has plagued the system of policing. And we're also going to discuss what a reimagined police department might look like. For this discussion, we're pleased to be joined by Elizabeth Jordan, a staff attorney with the Police Practices Project at the ACLU of Illinois. Liz, welcome to Talking Liberties. Thanks, Ed. Happy to be here. I want to just start, I think, with kind of a broad discussion and background. So, so how does the history of policing in the United States kind of inform this moment and this discussion um, that, that we're having here in Illinois and, frankly, that the whole country is having? If we think about policing as the beginning mechanism for the broader criminal justice system, so it's the, the first interaction that leads someone through arrest, prosecution, imprisonment, probation, all of the collateral consequences that follow, then it becomes clear that policing is directly tied, like all of those other institutions, to our country's history of enslavement. Um, and so if we look to slave patrols, those were an institution um, tasked with inflicting brutality to protect, quote-unquote, property, um, in other words, chasing down and terrorizing Black people in America. And the tasks themselves, the very tasks that slave patrols were in charge of enacting were things that seem extremely similar to stuff we're dealing with right now. Enforcing curfews, checking people for permission passes to move throughout an area, catching people who've assembled without permission. And moving forward through throughout history, we look at even after the abolishment of slavery, the convict leasing system, which supported the South's economy after slavery was abolished, that system was supported by the earliest police forces, which literally arrested Black people, former, formerly enslaved people, for things like mischief or loitering, which I'm sure we'll get to later, as an effort to support this new economic system. It's just amazing how many of these the, the phrases and kind of the sense of this are, are, are we think of as being these these new devices or these new things, but they really are things that are historic in nature in terms of of, of where their roots actually come from. And it, it, it goes back to the very foundation of the country. And it's not just the South either. It's directly related to Chicago. So in 1919, the Chicago Police Department somewhat connected to the race riots of 1919, but not entirely. The Chicago Police Department killed 34 residents in Chicago in 1919, over 100 years ago. 
Between 1870 and 1910, the rate of police homicides quintupled in Chicago. And so if we look at how we can learn from the history, I think we need to really draw from the movement to abolish slavery and look at the things that were successful and also look at the things that could be improved upon. So obviously we take from that that you need a a grand vision to reimagine what society could be, even in the face of people telling you that's simply not possible. But you also need decades of, of monitoring and enforcing the changes that you've been able to win. And so the reason I think that we're able to see these parallels is because unfortunately the new world that we've envisioned 200 years ago kind of got just replaced with new forms of of the same old stuff. And so we got to make sure that we're not in this place 200 years from now. It's just remarkable to hear that statistic in a way. So in ninth, so, so a hundred years ago, the problem, police murdering black people was a problem then, and it's a problem today. And I, I guess that systemically, we could, we could just draw a line between and among those things. Absolutely. Yeah, this is, not, this is not something new. This is unfortunately something that has been in our state and our city for, for as long as both have been around. So let's, I want to pick up then, um, there's kind of a theory that it's floated around, I think, every time we have to discuss this, which is the, oh, it's just a few bad apples, right? And and what your outline of the history of this really brings home uh, for for many is that this isn't a bad apple situation. This is a systemic, difficult problem. And so... I wonder if we could talk about what are these kinds of mechanisms of policing? What are these policies that we see that, that, that have been part of this sweep, you know, throughout this history? So I think one broad kind of overarching problem that impacts everything that police do in Illinois is the lack of effective accountability institutions. Um, so there's a state law in Illinois that mandates that if you file a complaint against a police officer, you have to file with that an affidavit. And that effectively blocks people from being able to hold police accountable for any range of things, whether they're, you know, these kind of sticky, institutionally racist uh, practices and policies that departments have, or whether they are, the, you know, the one individual who just had a bad day and treated someone poorly. In both cases, you're not able to hold officers or departments accountable in any meaningful way. Um, Outside of that kind of overarching problem, there are practices and policies throughout history and currently that have been uniquely disparate racially um, and that our office has challenged um, and others in in the city and in the movement have, have also challenged. And so... One well-known example of uh, the city's kind of racially disparate practices and policies in the department are the city's previous loitering laws. Um, And the United States Supreme Court ultimately found those laws unconstitutional thanks to a lawsuit from our office. Um, And we still see folks advocating for those types of laws, which effectively criminalize being Black in public space, particularly being black and young and in a group in public space. 
Another good example of this kind of insidious uh, racially disparate practice is stop and frisk. So everyone gives New York a ton of grief about stop and frisk, but at its height in Chicago, Chicagoans were stopped four times as often as New Yorkers um, at the height of the practice. Black Chicagoans make up one third of the population, but seven out of 10 stop and, stop and frisk. More recently, the city imposed a curfew uh, following protests against police brutality and violence, and 93% of those arrests made related to that curfew were arrests of Black people. These are arrests made during a pandemic that is disproportionately killing Black people in our city, and these arrests funneled people into the Cook County Jail, which at various points in the pandemic has been the number one fight in the nation. Uh, the number one single site vector of infection for COVID-19. So even when police don't actually injure or kill someone in their interaction, the disparate, inter the disparate nature of the interactions themselves can ultimately down the line injure and kill. You know, as I mentioned at the top of the discussion, uh, Illinois has been collecting data for the last 15 years uh, about traffic stops in our state. Every single traffic stop that gets made gets recorded. And one of the things that that data has consistently shown um, is that Black drivers are stopped at a rate far beyond their percentage in the driving population. Are there other examples you can think of of, of seeing racism kind of embedded in, in, you know, throughout the entire system? Well, so I would say that the the actual conduct that takes place once those stops occur are evidence, as you mentioned, of the racially disparate nature of policing in Illinois. So, for instance, Black and Latinx drivers are much more likely to be subject to consent searches during traffic stops. They're also much more likely to be subject to dog sniffs in Illinois during traffic stops. And if we go back to this notion that police interactions are the beginning of the prison pipeline, then it's no surprise that 60% of the state's prison population is Black, despite Black people only making up 15% of the state's population. And so police are given unfettered access to interact with and criminalize Black people through stop and frisk, through traffic stops at rates that just aren't true for white folks in Illinois. And we see in the data that those interactions lead to disastrous outcomes, whether it be for the health and safety of the people on the other end of it or the their entrance into the criminal justice system. Once we go down this road, once we, we see that, that there's this uh, linkage of, of people of color and criminality, is that is that black and brown neighborhoods tend to get over-policed. And I just wonder what you see as sort of the impact of those policies on those communities. Yeah, so I mean, study after study has shown that over-policing increases emotional and psychological distress for residents, um, particularly when coupled by some of the more insidious strategies used in those neighborhoods. So, for instance, um, the DOJ report that was released in 2017 regarding Chicago's uh, police misconduct indicated that in black and brown neighborhoods, these specialized jump out squads are used 
far more often than they are in white neighborhoods. And these, these are not, you know, kind of this vision of officer friendly, you know, buying ice cream for the kids and, and you know, feeding the dogs in the neighborhood. This, these are people who are wearing militarized uniforms, khaki pants, bulletproof vests. They're often not identified and their cars are not identified and they operate as a sort of occupying force in neighborhoods that make the neighborhoods themselves feel much less like a safe place for people to learn and grow and, and live. Um, this also results in people, obviously, for good reason, being afraid of interacting with the police, which can cause people to, for instance, run when they see police officers. And Chicago has paid out millions and millions of dollars related to misconduct for violence during foot pursuits. Um, we also see that people with disabilities are needlessly impacted by foot pursuits, particularly Black people with disabilities. So in 2017, there was a case where a teenager with autism left his house and was in his neighborhood running, and an off-duty police officer saw him running and shot him. Um, so this is a, a situation where people are not allowed to simply exist in their neighborhoods um, and are said criminalized at every turn. One of the things I think, you know, as we as we just gone through another weekend in Chicago with with an uptick in violence and in shootings, and I think, you know, one of the people say, or I think one of the things you hear people talk about is, is this the right time to think about, you know, rethinking policing, doing big changes to the police system because of the violence that exists? How do you how do you answer that question? Well, I actually want to draw from uh, another federal report that was looking into police misconduct in Chicago. Um, so this report was drafted after federal government officials investigated reports of abuse and they took several days of testimony at the federal courthouse building. And the intro to the report says, quote, the time for action for police reform has come. But that was not the consent decree. That was from 1972. That's called the Metcalf Report. My mom is in her mid-60s now. She was 15 years old, a CPS high school student when that report was issued. I should also note that she was a CPS high school student in a school where CPD was staffed. Later, I came along. I was also a CPS high school student in a school where CPD was staffed. This is generations of people who are subject to over-policing, police misconduct, police violence, and it's always both the time, but also not the time, quote unquote. And the time has, has the time came in the 1800s. Um, so the time is absolutely now. So, so the ACLU is supporting this concept of divestment in 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 policing, and I wonder if you could just explain a little bit of. How, what is that, and and how would it work? How would it how would it be implemented? What would it look like? So when we think about public budgets, there really are reflections of priorities of a particular place. So setting a budget means that you take a finite pool of money, public dollars, and say, what things do we think are important? What things are necessary to keep our citizenry 
uh, healthy and productive and safe. And so far, at our various levels of government, including city, state, federal, we have, over time, increased and increased and increased the amount of funding into policing and law enforcement. So keeping in mind the public dollars are finite, when that proportion gets bigger and bigger and bigger, other things get smaller and smaller. So we see, we've seen defunding of all sorts of other more meaningful areas of public life. We've seen the defunding of education, the defunding of the arts, the defunding of healthcare, of mental health services. All the while, policing is continuing to get funded more and more throughout the years. So divesting really means pulling funding from an institution that has just eaten our public funds over the years and caused trauma and, um, you know, has, has somewhat torn communities apart. And instead, investing those funds, reinvesting those funds into services that are actually preventative and restorative and necessary for a healthy and vibrant society. So really, it's about reprioritization. So what are the kinds of programs, things, you mentioned education, arts, and others. Are there other things that you could imagine wanting to invest in that would support the idea of public safety in, in a way that over-reliance on policing just hasn't been able to do. I think schooling is actually a really good example of this. In Chicago, there are 10,000 students for every one psychologist. But in 2015, 50 schools were closed because of budget concerns. CPD currently has a $33 million contract with Chicago Public Schools to staff full-time armed police officers in schools, including in elementary schools. So think about the ways that that one single budget line item could be repurposed to hire additional psychologists, hire social workers, hire counselors, hire people who can actually address youth behavior in a way that prevents that behavior from turning into adult behavior, number one but also can de-escalate in a developmentally appropriate manner. Um, that's just one example. We could also, I mean, we can look into any sort of public institution and identify ways that they could be benefited from increased funding. I mean, look at, look at the mental health care system in Illinois, continuously defunded. And people, people have needs in Illinois that are not being met. And we cite budgetary concerns for those reasons. We could have so much more in our state if we simply reprioritized. One of the things, like like you know this, but one of the things you're gonna hear from people who, some people who hear that, uh, will be to say that, well, you just wanna get rid of police um, on the streets. You're just gonna defund the police. This is the, the moniker that's used, and you know, you wanna get rid of that. And, and they would say that there wouldn't be anybody there then to protect people, um, you know, who were uh, subject to violence. How do you respond to that sort of argument? Because you know that that argument's going to come up in this discussion. Sure, of course it is. And, and so I would just point to um, data and statistics. Number one, I think there's a great misconception that police forces spend 
a majority of their time addressing crimes involving violence or preventing violence in some manner. And data has shown that that's simply not true. Studies across the country show that really only about four to five percent of policing time is spent on uh, addressing crimes involving violence or preventing violence. If we could decrease the Illinois police budget by 96 percent, I would be very happy with that. I think that would be a success. Um, but even even outside of of the four to five percent, um, if we look at the reality of where violence comes from and what violence is, we realize that this strategy actually is preventative on the front end. So violence is a symptom of a lack of needs being met in some way whether it's material needs or community needs or mental health care needs, people who have their needs met tend to not commit crime. So this strategy actually makes all of us safer on the front end. But in addition, police officers are sources of violence for many of us. Of the people in America who are killed by a stranger, one third of those people are killed by police. That's to say nothing of the people who are shot but not fatally, who are beaten up or have psychological trauma inflicted upon them by our police forces. So all things considered, that argument I don't think is a good faith argument and or is not an informed argument. But I'm hoping that as this conversation uh, continues in, in the public arena, we're able to, to actually equip people with the, the data necessary to have these real conversations. As you think about working towards that goal of divestment, um, are there some, some sort of interim steps that we ought to be taking in terms of reforming police departments? Are there, are there things that make sense for us to do even as we're looking at reinvesting and reimagining the police or, or public safety in a, in a different way? So our national office released a three-part formula, which gets kind of into the details of what divestment would look like. And the first prong in the three-part formula is effectively instituting legislative reforms or city directive reforms that greatly decrease police interaction with individuals. And so those would be prohibiting police from enforcing non-serious offenses like property fines, traffic stops, things like that, um, or making arrests for non-dangerous behavior. Uh, also, the second prong would be reinvesting those savings, and that's kind of the thing that we've been talking about the most today. Um, but the third prong would be implementing enforceable legal constraints so that there will only be rare occurrences uh, in which police officers can use force against community members, and one of those, uh, one of those third kind of factors uh, that has been getting a little more attention uh, nationally is qualified immunity. Um, so currently, on the federal level, officers who are sued for violating the rights of someone, even if that means having shot someone, are protected by the doctrine, this legal doctrine of qualified immunity. 
And so there are things that can be done legislatively and legally through the court system to change case law that also plays a role in this strategy. So I guess it was about a year or so ago, um, I heard a speaker at an ACLU event, and she used the phrase that culture eats policies for breakfast. And the point around policing in particular was, is that if you have, you know, if, if you don't change the culture or make people accountable, um, you can change all the policies in the world, but it doesn't really make a, a difference for people, um, you know, at, at the community or the neighborhood or even the block level. And so I wonder what you think about how we make sure that we're that we're making police accountable on every level uh, as, as we work through these kinds of changes. Yeah. So I, you know, I think the changes that we've been discussing, including uh, removing the affidavit requirement for police complaints, including uh, revising qualified immunity in federal courts so that officers can be held accountable for their the rights violations that they insist upon people. All of these things are necessary and important first steps, uh, second step, third step. Another thing that is important, though, another barrier to accountability um, that is important to start looking at and chipping away at is the police contracts, the union contracts. Um, Union contracts for police are chock full of barriers um, to holding police officers accountable when they violate someone's rights. And really, I think that is the key to actually seeing change to behavior. I know as a lawyer, if I file paperwork that says, blah, 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 I am, you know, on Mars, if I file that in court, my job's going to look at me like, mm, maybe you shouldn't have that job. If, if, if anyone in their job repeatedly make mistakes or repeatedly act in a way that is not appropriate, they lose their job. And I think that's what needs to start happening in policing. So obviously we're the ACLU of Illinois. Illinois is a big state. We've got lots of different, I mean, we've got, the issues we, you and I have mainly been talking about many issues that are Chicago-based, but there's the, the metropolitan Chicago region with, you know, many significantly sized uh, suburbs that, you know, they're downstate communities and small towns. Does, does reform or divestment, does that work in, in kind of at all those levels? Can you imagine it working in 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 a in a number of different ways across those different uh, uh, sort of population types and sizes and etc. It can and it must. So the problems that we see are not limited to big cities. You know, a lot of the resources that are available are coming out of Chicago just because of the size of it. And so those are some of the examples that we've used, but. These are phenomena that we see everywhere in small towns, rural areas, um, suburban areas. And so I want to I want to just give an example, another example out of the 1972 report. And 
this was out of Chicago, but I'm getting there. So there was a story of officers who engaged with a 19-year-old boy who had done nothing wrong. And during this encounter, this is the 19-year-old black boy, I should mention. During this encounter, one of the officers put a gun to the boy's head and told him that he would blow his brains out if he moved. This was someone who had objectively done nothing wrong and they had no reason to believe that he had done anything wrong. That took place in 1972 in Chicago, but it's also the same exact story down to the age um, that happened to our client in the Quad Cities in 2018. Um, And so this is not just a big city thing. It's not just a thing that's happening now or two years ago. This is something that happened across American cities, across different types of communities, and across decades. Um, This is unfortunately something that is uniquely American, um, and it impacts all of us, and it's just absolutely vital that we get it right this time. So, Liz, let me me ask you, uh, um, as as we sort of wrap up here, are you hopeful? Are you, uh, you know, how do you feel about this? Do you feel like this is possible? Where, where do you where do you sort of land on that? What I'll say is that I have seen a change in the public conversation over the last ten years. I actually was just looking through some of my old, old journals and saw that uh, ten years ago I made the decision to not, in fact, go to grad school, which I had been planning on, but to go to law school because I was so upset about the verdict in the Oscar Grant trial out of Oakland. Um, back then, there were people talking about this issue, but not anywhere close to the level at which we're seeing now. Even looking back to 2014, where the Black Lives Matter movement kind of originated and, and the Ferguson uprising began, and then Baltimore, you know, Black Lives Matter was almost seen as some sort of by the mainstream media, at least. And now we're seeing cities across the country painted on the streets. Now, I don't know if I think that that is, you know, a meaningful source of reform, but I do think that the, the, the cultural conversation is shifting in a way that does make me hopeful that, you know, it, it's not too far off. Well, Elizabeth Jordan, thank you so much for joining us for today and for talking about these issues. Thank you. Happy to be here. And thank you for listening to Talking Liberties with the ACLU of Illinois. Talking Liberties is produced by Max Bever. Our content supervisor is Kimberly Kozil. Our executive director is Colleen Connell. Subscribe to this podcast and rate us wherever you get your podcasts. You can visit our website at aclu-il.org. You can contact us directly at Talking Liberties, one word, at aclu-il.org. Until next time, this is Talking Liberties with the ACLU of Illinois. We'll see you soon.